All right, our scripture this morning is Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Brothers, if someone is caught in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please as sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us go do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Thank you, Michelle, for reading God's word for us this morning. So if you were going to describe your generation, the generation that you belong to, what words would you use? Now, this isn't a raise-your-hand kind of exercise. Just think about those things in your head. What events would you point to in order to figure out what has defined your generation over time? Now, describing a generation is a pretty difficult task. Usually, when we try to describe a generation, we make generalizations And as many people uh, say, we form stereotypes. And the problem with stereotypes, as I've heard, is that they, it's not that they're incorrect, it's just that they are usually incomplete. Now, we're all aware of the differences between generations and generations that we have in our country today. We know the conflicts that exist between the baby boomers and the millennials the clashes that we see on social media or in the news. We know that Gen Z, which is my generation, (laughs) is often distracted (laughs) with whatever the latest trend is on the Internet. But all of this talk about generations really points to a paradox. There's something going on as we look at the changes that have taken place from generation to generation as things have been passed down over time. Newer generations have gained more liberty over time, more freedom to make choices, to do whatever they would like to do with their lives. But as we trace that over time, depression rates and mental health issues are also growing. But that doesn't seem to make sense to us, right? Why, why would growing freedom also include growing mental health issues? Our lives have gotten longer over time, but we're still searching for meaning. Now, there have been many books written about these things. In a recent one by author Jean M. Twenge, uh, she tackles this challenge of tracing generations over time. 
This, she writes in her book, Generations, this is a pretty long title. Generations, the real differences between Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, boomers, and silence, and what they mean for America's future. Now, one of her main points in the book is that the differences between older generations and younger generations are not necessarily character-based, though that's usually the first thing that we point to. We think of things like millennials are lazy, Gen Z is distracted, or baby boomers are out of touch. The differences, instead, if they're not character-based, are instead based in objective external factors that can be tracked over time. Historical events, cultural shifts, changes in technology have all made different generations who they are. As Samuel Jones says in his review of the book, now I read the review, not the book itself, he says, what makes a boomer a boomer a silent, a silent, or a millennial, a millennial, aren't virtues and vices, but different experiences of a culture that has often changed dramatically in a short amount of time. All of those external factors, they center around those three points of conflict, technology, changes in family life and expectations, and mental health. Technology, which advances so quickly that we don't even realize the negative effects that it has on us until it's too late. Family life and the tension that exists between the pressures for materialism and wealth and pursuing a career, but also the pressure to settle down and have children. And all of those two things combine to form what many have called a mental health crisis today. Now, the main insight from this book is that these changes in culture will continue to change over time. And that the problem is not necessarily in the people that emerge from these generations themselves, but in the society that we all exist in. Now, you might be wondering, well, what does all of this have to do with our return to the book of Matthew this morning? (laughs) Now, Jesus himself in today's passage will comment On the generation of his day, Jesus has something to say about the people that lived when he was on the earth. And that's the passage in Matthew that we'll be looking at this morning. Hopefully we'll see that Jesus was onto something when he was describing his generation. Let me pray for us this morning and then we'll take a look at Matthew chapter 11. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. That even in the midst of change over time, turmoil, generations, God, we thank you that you stay the same. That you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Father, we praise you for that this morning. And we praise you for your word, which uh, we get to learn from. And so may these insights from Jesus this morning change our hearts, change the way that we live. God, may you receive the honor and the glory this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 11. That's where we'll be spending our time together this morning. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 688, I believe. Uh, So that'll help you turn there. We'll be looking at all of chapter 11 this morning. So it's a pretty long section, which I've split up into three parts. If you have a 
sermon outline and your bulletin, you can see those three parts there for you. Uh, first, we'll talk about two rejected messengers in verses 1 through 19. Then we'll talk about three unrepentant towns in verses 20 through 24. And then finally, one father's purpose, verses 25 through 30. Let me read that first section for us, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. I'll pause there for us this morning. So we're picking up here in Matthew chapter 11, if you remember before we took a break over the summer to do our spiritual practices sermon series, we were in Matthew chapter 10. And in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had just sent out his disciples to do the work of ministry. Now that Jesus has sent out his disciples, he himself is going to continue his work of ministry. Jesus will continue to teach and to preach, and we read that he's doing so in the towns of Galilee. Now these are small rural towns, and Jesus has really yet to make his appearance on the big stage in Jerusalem. Now John the Baptist, who we met all the way back in chapter 3, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, baptized people in the Jordan River, baptized Jesus himself. Now John, as we read, has ended up imprisoned. 
And Jesus, in the last chapter, he promised his disciples that they would face persecution as they ministered. And this we find to be true of John here. John has heard about all that Jesus has been doing, his many miracles, his preaching, and his teaching. And so even though John has baptized Jesus already, he still has some questions about who he is. He's curious. So he sends people to ask Jesus Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Basically asking, are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Now, John can't see Jesus' ministry from prison. He's only heard reports. He wants to know for himself if what he's hearing is really true. And Jesus, when these people come to him, he responds by simply saying, well, just look around you. Look at all that you have seen. My miracles speak for themselves, that those who were blind can now see, that those who were lame can now walk, that those have all these people have received healing. My teaching and my preaching has come to those who need it the most. This is proof that the Messiah is here. It should be obvious. Just look at all that has happened. Only the Son of God could have caused this to happen. Jesus is the one who is to come. We should not expect anyone else. So John's disciples, they receive this news, and they decide to go back to John to report all of this. And Jesus takes this moment He then turns from John's disciples and he turns to the crowd and he takes this opportunity to teach them about John the Baptist. He says, you all went out into the wilderness to see John. You all have been following this person. Some of you were baptized by him, mostly because he was a prophet. But Jesus says he is more than a prophet. John the Baptist had a special role in all of this to prepare the way for Jesus to come. He's more than a prophet in that sense. And so it was John that the Old Testament book Malachi, which we looked at earlier this year, prophesied about. John the Baptist was not a man dressed in fine clothes. Those men dressed in fine clothes can be found in palaces. Those men in palaces like the home of King Herod, who imprisoned John the Baptist. This is a moment where Jesus begins to honor John. Jesus is holding John up and saying, This man was not extravagant. He did not have a lot, but he did have a job to do. He was obedient to it. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus to come into the world. And because he did that, John the Baptist is great. There is no one born of women greater than John the Baptist, Jesus says. But here's where Jesus then twists it. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is great, but John the Baptist is not yet in the kingdom of heaven. You see, to be united with God for eternity in heaven is better than being on the earth. To be in heaven is the ultimate blessing. And the least blessed person in heaven is still more blessed than the greatest person on earth. Jesus's point is all going towards this. 
what he has come to the earth to do. His death and resurrection, which provides the means for us to have salvation in him and to gain eternal life, this is the greatest thing, and it is near for these people. Jesus wants this crowd to understand that John the Baptist is great, but the salvation we can have through Jesus is better. All of the prophets and the law have pointed to this salvation that was coming up until John. And so in that way, he is like the prophets who came before him. He is like Elijah. Whoever has ears to hear about this salvation, Jesus says, let them hear about it. But Jesus, he then points to a problem after saying all of this. Well, not all are willing to hear it. Not all want to hear about the good news. And this is where he provides his commentary on what his generation is like. He says, they are like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to other people. Now they are children, so in some sense we could say that they lack maturity. They are in the marketplace, in the center of commerce, in the midst of the hustle and bustle, and they are calling out to other people craving attention, craving to be heard. And Jesus says what they are calling out, saying. He says that they played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. They're calling out, doing things for one purpose, of getting a certain reaction out of people. Now, this generation is upset that the people have not reacted in the way that they wanted them to. Jesus, in the next couple of verses, points to the fact that this generation is inconsistent. John did not eat or drink, and they say that he has a demon. But Jesus does eat and drink, and they call him a glutton and a drunkard. And so this generation contradicts themselves. Even those who have come to save them, they are rejecting. Their way is the highway. Now Jesus is describing his present generation, but in a way he is describing all generations. This commentary from Jesus should remind us of the generations that we see in our world today. All generations think that they have it all figured out. They think that their way of doing things is correct. All generations think, maybe deep down, maybe they won't vocalize this, maybe they think that they are the best generation. All generations in their own way seek to be heard, speak to be listened to, speak to get attention. All generations try to get others to conform to their way of doing things. All generations are inconsistent in some sense. They might say one thing, but really mean another. Now Jesus is saying that all generations share one big thing in common. They are searching for meaning in all the wrong places. They're calling out to others when really they should be calling out to Jesus himself. It isn't their way of doing things that is the best. The best way of doing things is following after the life and ministry of Jesus. See, when we accept the salvation that we have in Jesus, we become part of the one true generation the generation that really is the best generation. The family of God, 
the generation that will enjoy eternity with God in heaven for generations and generations to come. See, when we are welcomed into the family of God, that surpasses all of the generational differences that so often separate us from one another. We are all part of our specific generation for a reason. We were all born into a specific time and a specific place for a purpose. And that purpose is because our generation needs to hear the good news about Jesus. All generations need to hear the gospel. It's easy to let differences between generations stop us from crossing that divide to share the gospel with other people. So my first question for you this morning is this. How can you engage your generation for the sake of Jesus? How can you use your knowledge of the people that are around your age to share the gospel with them? My second question is like it. How can you engage other generations for the sake of Christ? How can you cross that divide? Who do you know that is different from you? Maybe a different generation. What are the things that you see eye to eye on? What are the ways in which you can minister to others? Now the church certainly needs people from different generations working together for the sake of building the kingdom. But Jesus, he not only talks about this generation itself, but he also talks about the towns that this generation lives in. So let me read our next section, Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained in this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So Jesus moves here from talking about specific people to talking about specific places. Now Jesus has seen a lot as he's traveled from town to town, as he's performed miracles, and as he's taught in specific locations. And as we have seen, not everyone has been so receptive of him. Some have questioned Jesus, some have threatened Jesus, and some have repented and believed in him. And so Jesus begins to call out these towns and these places specifically for not repenting, despite the fact that the Son of God has come and visited them and done miracles in their midst, they have still not repented and believed in him. And so he pronounces judgment upon them, similar to what the Old Testament prophets did. Woe to Chorazin, woe to Bethsaida, and later woe to Capernaum. But then Jesus says something profound. He says, 
If the miracles that have been performed in these places had been performed in Tyre and Sidon and in Sodom, if those miracles had been done in those towns, they would have repented. And on the day of judgment, it will be more bearable for them than for you. So Jesus is really contrasting these places against each other. So we have to understand what the cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom are. They're ancient cities. Tyre and Sidon, located in modern-day Lebanon. Sodom is an ancient city in Canaan. This means that they were Gentile or pagan cities. The main thing that these cities were known for was their wickedness and their sin. They worshipped foreign gods. Rampant immorality was found there. And Israel had more than a few negative interactions with them over their history. And so Jesus is saying that even in these wicked cities, even in the most terrible of places that you can think of, if Jesus had gone there and performed his miracles there, those people would have repented. These towns of Israel, who were supposed to be God's chosen people, are worse off than they are. They have become so hard of heart that they have rejected the Messiah who was sent to save them in the first place. This is a heavy, heavy indictment from Jesus. And his point is this. Not all who witness the life-giving power of Jesus will accept them, will accept him. It's just the reality of it. Despite that, All people need to hear about him anyways. Jesus went to these towns knowing that they would not repent and believe in him, but that there were some there who would accept him. And so Jesus goes to minister to them anyways. Now, sometimes we are afraid of specific people. We're afraid of a specific place because we think, well, those people won't be receptive to hear about the good news of Jesus. And maybe to some extent we're right about that. But they need to hear about him anyways. Jesus says that even the worst place would have repented and believed in him. As Jesus says, sometimes those who we think are the farthest away end up being the most receptive to him. So if the miracles performed by Jesus had been done in Morgantown, Pennsylvania, or in Elverson, Pennsylvania, or in Honeybrook, Pennsylvania, what would have happened? How would people respond? Would they repent and believe in the good news about Jesus, or would they reject him? It's an interesting thought experiment. (laughs) But really, the answer doesn't truly matter, because we need to go and tell people about Jesus anyways. The only way to find out how they will respond to Jesus is by telling them about him. So my second question for you this morning is this. In light of Jesus's commentary on places and towns, how can you engage with your town or with your community for the sake of Christ? How can you bring the healing power of Jesus, the love of Christ, to the people around you? As much as government programs or nonprofit efforts can help our towns, the only thing that can truly change them is if people repent and place their trust in Jesus.
So there's purpose to everything that Jesus is saying here, right? There's a reason why things are happening this way, why his generation is so corrupt, and why these towns haven't repented, and he points to that in our last section. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Let me read that for us. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now Jesus, in this section, begins to praise God. He begins to praise his Father in heaven. But why he praises God is a pretty interesting thing. He praises God because God has hidden these things from the wise. Because God has revealed these things to the children. Now Jesus is summarizing all that he has said in the last two sections here at the end. Those who have rejected him, those who have rejected John the Baptist, those in the towns that have been unrepentant, they are the wise and the learned. It is those who think that they know it all who have rejected Jesus. The self-righteous and the proud have not seen the Son of Man for who he truly is. But instead, those who are like little children, those who see things more simply, those who have the greatest need, they have seen Jesus for who he truly is. So the difference between those who accept Jesus and those who don't, it's not a matter of intellectual understanding. It's about humble trust. And repentance. Some will see their need for Jesus, and some won't. But in a greater sense, really, only Jesus understands who, or only the Father truly understands who Jesus is. See, we as people only have a finite grasp of the infinite glory and majesty of Christ. We can't see Christ for who he is in his fullness. The Father has an infinite grasp of the infinite glory and majesty of Christ because the Father is infinite. So because of that, only the Father truly knows the Son. Only the Son truly knows the Father, as Jesus says. But also those who the Son chooses to reveal the Father to. See, the only way for us to truly understand who God is is through his son, Jesus. We see here a glimpse of what the relationship between the father and the son is like. They share an intimate connection. Their conversation here is really a powerful one. We see the love and the unity that they share. The only way for us to have that kind of relationship with the father is through his son, Jesus. See, without Jesus, a person can't truly know God. 
This is why Christianity is really an exclusive religion in this sense. Jewish people cannot truly know God if they have rejected his son. Muslim people cannot truly know God because they have diminished who his son is. An agnostic person can, cannot truly know God because they have ignored his son. See, as I've said before, all other religions are about what we can do to get to God. But at the end of the day, we can't get to God. God is perfect, he's holy, and we are not. Anything that we try and do on our own will fall short. But Christianity is about God instead coming to us, knowing that we cannot do anything by ourselves to get to him. So he sent his son Jesus into the world to save us. So if you want to know God, then you have to know Jesus. And if you want to know Jesus, then you must become like a child. Jesus offers one last thing for those who do want to get to know him. As we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, Jesus will give them rest. Even in the midst of what really is a chaotic chapter of the Bible, John the Baptist is in jail, persecuted for all the wrong reasons. This generation seeking after all the wrong things and rejecting Jesus himself. The unrepentant towns seeing all the right things but ignoring them, despite being rejected in the pe- by people and by towns, Jesus still offers rest to those who are willing to accept him. He says he is gentle and humble in heart. He is the example of what humility looks like for us. And as he says, if we take his yoke upon us, and if we learn from him, we will find that rest. He says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. These are the words of Jesus this morning. See, following Jesus still means that we carry a burden with us. But it is an easy and a light one. See, the burden that the world would put on us, the burden that our generation might put on us, the burden that other generations might put on us, is to seek meaning, understanding, satisfaction, or worth all on our own. The weight of that burden will crush us. The burden that Jesus gives to us will give us that meaning, that understanding, that satisfaction, and that worth. And the weight of that burden that Jesus gives us instead frees us from it. See, Jesus bore the ultimate burden on the cross when he took the sin of the world, past, present, and future, upon himself. Took the weight of sin upon himself so that we wouldn't have to. This is what it means to repent and believe. It's to believe that Jesus did that for you. That you don't have to carry the heavy, heavy burden of your sin around with you anymore. So as Jesus promises, even in the chaos of generations and towns, come to him and you will find rest. This is what we offer to people when we say that we will share the good news of Jesus with them. The greatest rest they can ever have is found in him. So we ask them to come to Jesus, maybe for the first time, 
maybe for the thousandth time, that rest can be found in him. Let me pray for us this morning as we close. Father, we thank you that even in the midst of all of this, even as we talk about generations and towns, Father, at the heart of it is that Jesus gives us rest. Rest here and now. Rest in our lives despite everything that happens to us. But eternal rest as well. Eternal rest with our Father in heaven. So may we seek the rest that can be found in Jesus here and now. May we help others to seek that rest as well. May we live into that in our lives. May we be changed by it. May we not be the corrupt generation. May we not be the unrepentant town. But may we accept Jesus for who he is, for what he has done for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.